Welcome back to PS Editor's Podcast. I'm Greg Bruno. Lawmakers in China have passed an historic constitutional amendment that will allow the president to rule indefinitely. China's parliament, the National People's Congress, has just approved a constitutional amendment to abolish presidential terms. Does China now have a president for life? The country China is making the most significant change to its political system in 35 years. In March, China's National People's Congress rubber-stamped the elimination of presidential term limits for that country. For President Xi Jinping and his allies, the move marked the end of a protracted political struggle with implications that go far beyond China's borders. Not since Mao Zedong has a modern Chinese leader amassed so much power so quickly, but Xi is steering a far more powerful country than Mao did, one that already rivals the United States economically and is determined to do so militarily. With no real opposition, Xi is now free to govern as he sees fit. Of course, so was Mao, which led to the appalling abuses of power that the establishment of term limits was supposed to address. As my guest today has argued, the Xi era may have no fixed end date, but it remains an open question as to how effective China's newest emperor can be. Min Xing Pei, a professor of government at Claremont McKenna College, has even suggested that the ideological indoctrination and repression underpinning Xi's authority could eventually be his undoing. Hello? Hi, Min Xing. Thanks for joining us today on PS Editor's Podcast. Hi, how are you? I'm great, thanks. I'm very glad to be part of the podcast. And we're very happy to have you. So I want to jump right into the conversation. Much has happened in the last few months, but just in the last uh, couple of weeks, the Chinese National People's Congress voted somewhat unanimously, although there were some abstentions and no votes, to remove presidential term limits in China, essentially allowing President Xi Jinping to rule indefinitely. I wonder if you could put this constitutional change into perspective for us. What does it mean for China, for its neighbors, and for the world? Yeah, uh, first let me give you some background about how it was instituted. Uh, after the death of Mao, uh, those colleagues of Mao who survived the Cultural Revolution decided that strongman rule was very bad for China and for the Chinese Communist Party. So they uh, changed the constitution back in 1982 to impose the two-term limits. Uh, the position of the presidency, uh, and uh, uh, it worked for roughly, let's say, uh, 35 years, uh, and nobody was exempt. Uh, so this time, uh, when uh, Xi Jinping managed to get rid of this term limit, uh, there were really serious consequences. Uh, for China, uh, obviously, uh, now uh, it's almost a given that he will rule indefinitely. Uh, for the rest of the world, uh, it will uh, also mean that uh, they're going to deal with China uh, with a very different political uh, regime. It's uh, really back to one-party rule, uh, not just one-party rule, one-party rule on the one-man rule. And uh, uh, it may have some uh, pluses, uh, but uh, mostly there will be downsides. That is, policy making in China will be very centralized, and policy will re reflect the preferences of one man uh, whose interests may not be aligned fully with the interests of the country uh, and the interests of uh, those who he deals with. Uh, so there are uh, 
without just going into a long-winded discussion of what it means, just give you this would be uh, uh, one way to start thinking about uh, uh, the implications of the term. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned centralization. One of the challenges that the Communist Party has always had is the inability to enforce its writ uh, at lower levels. And she seems to be trying to rewrite that, that somewhat troubled history. Um, but if you're on the, the right side of his policy, then I suppose it's good news. But if you're, if you're not, then it might not be such good news. Oh, yes. I think one thing about centralization and versus decentralization uh, is that when you look at the record of the Chinese Communist Party's uh, performance in the post-Mao era, periods of decentralization uh, have produced much better economic growth, uh, while periods of centralization often led to paralysis. Because China is huge and diverse, it is very difficult to uh, impose one man's will, will or vision on the entire country. Uh, so now we are into a very new and probably very different period in which we'll see whether recentralization works. Yeah, I want to get into whether or not he will succeed. But before that, I was just curious, has any Chinese leader tried and failed to initiate uh, a removal of term limits? Nobody tried to initiate the removal of the term limit. Uh, the only person who attempted to stay on after his term expired uh, was Jiang Zemin. Uh, Jiang stepped down in 2002 from his position as the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. Incidentally, in Xi Jinping occupies three positions. The most important one is the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party when his positions are listed. The second uh, is the state chairmanship, uh, commonly known as the presidency. And the third is the chairman of the Military Affairs Commission. Uh, and of these three positions, only the presidency is term-limited by the Constitution. The other two are sort of term-limited by convention, by president, by norms. So when uh, Jiang Zemin quit his uh, uh, position as the general secretary in 2002, and then his uh, presidency in 2003, he stayed on for two years at least uh, as the chairman of the Military Affairs Commission, which is China's commanding chief. Uh, so there was a, a semi-president in which somebody tried to stay on, but uh, that person did not explicitly try to break the term limit. There, there were good reasons. Uh, it's not that these his, pre, his predecessors, mainly Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, did not try to break the term limit. Simply, it was very difficult politically. These people, these two individuals, worked in a very different political environment in which power was shared. Uh, nobody tried to use the anti-corruption campaign to systematically purge his rivals. So uh, there was this fine balance of power that prevented one single individual from getting rid of constitutional limit on their power. For Xi, it was very different. Before he removed the term limit, he succeeded in removing anybody 
who could possibly stand in his way through his anti-corruption campaign. Right. I was going to ask the next question was going to be, how did he do it? And the anti-corruption campaign was a big piece. You've also written uh, in one of your commentaries for Project Syndicate back in October that he, in addition, started promoting people into these positions of, of leadership, especially within the National People's Congress, that allowed him to have friends in the right places, I suppose, as the vote came along. Oh, absolutely. He did it uh, in a, a very clever way. Uh, first, he floated the idea without identifying the content, <laughs> uh, according to a New York Times hmm. uh, story back in uh, September. What, what do you uh, mean by the content? What, what did he float? Uh, the, the specific. He just said, well, we needed to uh, revise the Constitution. He did not say uh, what, needed, what needed to be revised. So he, so he could stick I, around I forever. <laughs> stick around. Uh, yeah. Uh, then he tested. It's really floating a trial balloon. And then he had his uh, loyalists. He promoted quite a few, uh, even uh, before the party congress. Uh, and then they began to chime in. In the, uh, January, uh, when they decided to uh, have, well, in January they held a central committee meeting. And by that time, uh, half of the party bureau uh, were his men. They decided what specifically to revise and the term limit. Uh, the proposal, the removal of the term limit, uh, was put on the table with very little time for discussion. Mm. So it was essentially rammed down the throat of the Central Committee. Mm -hmm. Well, before we get into the question of whether he will succeed in delivering uh, on his agenda or, or placing value judgments on what he accomplished, um, let me just say, uh, that it's rather remarkable that he did accomplish it uh, after 35 years of essentially um, two-term limit presidencies uh, and uh, the ability or the inability uh, for a strongman to emerge. Um, and you can see it as completely as in the National People's Congress vote. I mean, it's a 3,000-member chamber. And how many no votes did we have? Two and I think three abstentions. You know, yeah, right. In, in constitutional changes in the past have brought as many as 100 votes. So that either suggests that there is overwhelming support for President Xi or an overwhelming atmosphere of intimidation within the party. What do you think it is? I think it's absolutely the latter, because China as a whole today uh, is ruled by fear, as I uh, wrote in one of the commentaries for Project Syndicate. Uh, uh, what characterizes uh, the rule of Xi Jinping is that he has very successfully and very quickly brought back uh, fear uh, into political life, into social life, uh, and uh, not many people uh, dare to challenge uh, his authority. Uh, and those who tried uh, did not end up very well. Uh, uh, before he proposed the constitutional amendment uh, last year, uh, the, there was this Politburo member who was seen as a rising star who could be possibly a successor. He was removed. And then he was uh, reviled in the press as one of the most degenerate human beings uh, uh, in the Communist Party. And there was another person uh, that was the Chinese internet czar. I mean, the that person, his name is Lu Wei, he played an instrumental role in cracking down on social media and reigning in China's internet. Uh, you would have thought this guy deserved a medal. Uh, but again, he was purged without uh, 
any explanation. And then once uh, his crimes were uh, revealed, he was again depicted as a morally degenerate, disloyal individual. So uh, uh, Mr. Xi uh, has really used the instrument of fear very, very effectively in intimidating his uh, rivals and also in establishing his authority. So let's look at our crystal ball, if we could, uh, and let me pose the question, how far does fear get Xi Jinping? Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, rooting out corruption at the highest levels um, is one thing, but attacking people's religious freedoms and rule of law and taking the, the fight, I suppose, or the fear to the, to, the, to the base, to the common people, potentially carries much higher risks. Oh, yes, because uh, Chinese society in the post-Mao era uh, has been both uh, depoliticized in the ideological sense. That is, uh, the Communist Party no longer tries to impose a set of official values on uh, people and force them to think along those lines. Uh, the other uh, very important uh, uh, development in the post-Mao era is that Chinese people have grown accustomed to uh, what you might call uh, a, a, a modus vivendi, <laughs> that is, uh, a mode of life. That mm. is, they know that if they do not cross the government politically, that is, they do not challenge the Communist Party's authority to rule uh, uh, directly, they can enjoy a huge space right. I mean, in terms of personal freedom. Right, there's this co- uh, accommodation towards religion and to other types yeah, of freedom. Religion, that, yeah. travel, just uh, what they read, what can they do on the internet. And uh, all these things are now at risk, especially religion, because religion, uh, Christianity, not necessarily Buddhism, uh, uh, has uh, been uh, placed under much tighter control uh, in the last five years since she's arrived, uh, she's rise to power. Uh, so, uh, and uh, uh, I think in terms of in- entertainment, in terms of uh, on uh, social media, the crackdown has been systematic and uh, uh, very, very severe. I I have not been to China for some time, so I don't know. Uh, and of course, it's impossible to get the public opinions through public right, polling. Right. Uh, but uh, if I were an ordinary Chinese, I wouldn't be very happy hmm. uh, to be reminded that somehow the ghost of Mao has returned. That's a very good point. I mean, let's look at that public opinion piece for a moment. I think that many people that don't understand China well don't fully appreciate how important, at least historically, public opinion has been to the legitimacy of the Communist Party. How worried should she be that we have... Chinese citizens, at least abroad, and, and largely Chinese students abroad, talking publicly about whether or not their president is their president, whether he has the right to rule. Yeah, I, I think uh, 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 he, uh, he should be uh, worried, uh, but not uh, hugely. That is, uh, uh, after all, uh, these, are, uh, these people abroad are relatively small in number, and they don't have... Uh, much influence within China. But uh, nevertheless, uh, this kind of sentiment is shared uh, within China. Uh, 
because what's happening uh, that is very strange in Chinese politics these days is that you can say what is going on in Beijing is largely uh, uh, divorced. It is really has it is irrelevant to what's going on in Chinese society. Uh, all uh, these elaborate efforts to con- reconstruct a type of personality cult uh, to revive uh, neo-Maoist traditions, they don't really resonate well with Chinese people. Of course, uh, those Chinese nationalists are encouraged by the talk of a China dream, a great power, uh, and so forth. But the bulk of Chinese people go about their lives uh, thinking uh, about their personal uh, uh, issues, about uh, retirement, about jobs, about education. Uh, and these things, uh, that uh, the rhetoric, the official rhetoric coming out of Beijing, uh, I personally believe that it's really hard to imagine that such rhetoric actually resonates with the Chinese people. Well, that's a, a nice way, I suppose, to to turn to the question of whether or not, now that she has what he allegedly wanted, the removal of term limits, will he be successful in delivering his agenda? One of the, uh, the arguments that, you, and in fact, you just made, is that, that the Chinese public largely has accepted some of these illiberal policies because of economic growth and uh, the ability to retire and, and to have welfare state that works. Um, if those things aren't there, then of course the legitimacy and the and the power uh, that she has amassed becomes a little bit less tenable. Um, talk us through what his his economic vision is, what he's promised, and whether or not you think he'll actually succeed in delivering any of it. Okay, uh, I'm quite skeptical about the relationship of concentration of power and the delivery of actual results. Uh, because, uh, as I said at the beginning, if you look at uh, the entire history of communist rule in China since 1949, and we're talking about almost 70 years, uh, the period of concentration of power, one main rule, uh, which was the Maoist era, uh, was the period of economic disaster, political disaster, and the period of uh, collective leadership uh, power sharing, decentralization, and that's most of the post-Mao era, uh, was a period of relative economic uh, success and political stability. Uh, so if you look at history, then you should be worried about uh, the kind of economic performance that Mr. Xi can deliver in the years ahead. Uh, there's also another aspect to the removal of uh, term limit and uh, concentration power. I have not seen the discussion of this aspect in uh, the press. Uh, uh, Term limit does not just apply to the top guy. Term limit applies to everybody in the Chinese system, uh, the Chinese party state. So if the top person is not term limited, how can you persuade uh, those lower down in the system to uh, step out uh, after two terms, even though when they are much younger, <laughs> 60 or 65. So you can expect in the years ahead a huge amount of resentment build up in the system among the party's frontline officials, uh, or even some of the se- very senior officials, uh, 
uh, who uh, really don't want to retire. And when they have their top uh, leader who is not subject to retirement rule, uh, there's going to be a lot of anger uh, and frustration. Uh, so in that kind of system, how can you depend, how can you count on these angry, frustrated, resentful people to deliver your policy objectives? Hmm. So this is the what about sort of, uh, on the political side, uh, you are going to see uh, a lot of uh, uh, negative consequences. So does this, and mater- that can- does this materialize in political gridlock and the inability to, li- to deliver oh, yes. really anything? Yeah, passive resistance. That's, this is what Chinese officials are very good at. They don't have to take to the streets, they know, or they don't have to say anything uh, in uh, public or in small meetings. All they need to do is to take three times as long to accomplish one thing. <laughs> and that, take a slightly uh, longer lunch. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so that, that uh, cumulatively that can have a huge impact. Uh, and this actually uh, has already occurred in the last five years. Chinese officials uh, have been dragging their feet because they've been very unhappy with uh, the use of fear, uh, in- intimidation uh, by their government. And uh, they've been very, very upset about uh, the loss of their uh, privileges and perks uh, as a result of the anti-corruption campaign. So uh, bureaucratic resistance, resentment, political uh, disillusionment uh, could really hold back uh, the Chinese government's capacity to impose, uh, well, to uh, uh, improve its economic performance. Interesting. And this actually brings me full circle in terms of where I want to end the conversation. One of the key features that has always set China apart in the modern era has been the orderly transfer of power. Uh, Post-Mao, that was one of the things that made China somewhat unique in its authoritarian system. How does Xi's elimination of that orderly process, the meritocratous rise of leadership within the Communist Party, how does it affect legitimacy, especially given the importance of public perception in a one-party state? Yeah, uh, excellent uh, question. Uh, I think uh, this will... Uh, be Xi's uh, greatest test uh, because rule-based legitimacy is gone. Uh, now it's down to performance-based legitimacy. And if performance-based legitimacy is so difficult to deliver uh, given uh, what's happening to the Chinese economy, a huge amount of debt, now a very uh, uncertain external environment to say the least, with protectionism rising, uh, aging population, and uh, you you can list a large number of obstacles uh, uh, going forward for the Chinese economy. So that would be very difficult. Now you so performance-based legitimacy will be hard to attain. Uh, rule-based legitimacy is gone. Then it's all down to personality-based legitimacy. That is, you try to construct or reconstruct a personality cult so that uh, the system is less important than the leader's image. And that that's uh, that might be doable, but that's very, very dangerous because we're now back to the Maoist territory. Uh, so that's, uh, I don't know how this is going to play out, but uh, the longer, again, we have to look back 
uh, history, especially Chinese history. Uh, when you look at Mao, really the last one man, who, one man example of one man rule in China, uh, Mao's uh, authority began to decline after about 10 years in power. That's in mid uh, 1950s. And then he tried to revive his personal authority with a series of very risky uh, and ill-conceived policy moves, such as the anti-rightist campaign, such as the Great Leap Forward. And after two two, uh, disasters, he uh, doubled down and produced the biggest disaster of his rule, the Cultural Revolution. So uh, if you apply uh, the experience of Maoist rules, then... Uh, it, uh, uh, you are really looking at a period of ex- enormous risks ahead when the succession uh, the issue remains unresolved. Incidentally, Mao never resolved the uh, issue of succession. Uh, those who he uh, picked as successors were systematically purged. So right. that's kind of, yeah, in a system without rules, uh, it's very hard to uh, orderly arrange succession. I mean, in a country where many people remember all of those events that you just mentioned, it's surprising that we're seeing a return of history so quickly. Oh, yes. But there's an explanation, because in the post-Mao China, the Communist Party has systematically repressed collective memory. The Cultural Revolution uh, uh, was uh, almost papered over. Uh, and since uh, Xi's rise, the Communist Party uh, has banned discussion of the Maoist era. They changed, they changed uh, textbooks. The Cultural Revolution is not covered in two paragraphs hmm. in Chinese, uh, uh, in the text, uh, history textbooks of uh, Chinese middle school. Uh, so uh, now with this kind of amnesia, uh, it is uh, not hard to uh, uh, bring back uh, some of the most critical aspects of Maoist rule. Well, I think that's a sobering place to leave the conversation. Thank you so much for your time today, Mishing. Uh, much, very much of a, a pleasure to speak to you, and I look forward to speaking to you again. I hope that we're both wrong in our assessment, but um, I hope so too. <laughs> I don't think... because otherwise China will be in great trouble. That was Minxing Pei, professor of government at Claremont McKenna College, and a longtime Project Syndicate contributor. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno. 